Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, as we have seen in, in our previous studies, as we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 6, the, the glorious truth that uh, we find with the temple of God, uh, the promise of what God had uh, set apart to be able to do to not only save the people out of the hand of uh, Pharaoh and the oppression thereof, but to give them a land, but also that he might be able to come and dwell with them uh, forever, is what he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Uh, and that they're going to go into this promised land and they're not to worship God in the way that uh, the surrounding uh, nations worship their false gods, but they're going to worship God in the true and correct way. And that's what, this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. You shall seek the place that Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And they're there to go every time to be able to make sacrifices unto the Lord and to worship him. And now we uh, see this glorious truth coming to fruition here underneath Solomon's reign as there's peace on every side. And uh, we finish chapter seven, uh, 6 with the, the house of the Lord been finished, is what we read here in chapter 6, verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, the eleventh year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month. The house was finished in all its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. And then we have what seems to be another uh, abrupt interruption, um, similar to what we saw in chapter 6 in verses 11 to 13. Uh, it just seems that the story is going on about the house of the Lord and, his constru- and the construction of it. And, and there's this abrupt uh, entrance. And the word Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. You walk in my statutes, obey my rules, and keep my commandments, and walk in them, and I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. And uh, it seems yet another apparent interruption, uh, down to verse 13 in chapter 7, and the king Solomon sent and brought Hiram king of Tyre, he was the son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre, a worker uh, in bronze. He was full of wisdom, and he and he sets out to be able to do uh, to have uh, more uh, building special uh, um, pieces of work that are in and on the temple. Things that will be used, altars, pillars, and uh, but yet there's there seems to be this this interruption. But we need to note that uh, biblical authors do not have ADHD. It's not merely that they're just writing and they change their mind. Oh, I forgot. I've got to write this bit in here. Where, where should I put it? It's not edited in backwards. And, and it's just this editorial mistake of, of, oh, we forgot to take it out. It doesn't flow smoothly. Uh, they don't get sidetracked. But, but when we have these abrupt interruptions, we need to, to pause and, and think about what they're trying to point out and highlight to us. Now I'm going to read from verse 37 again, and we're going to go all the way down to uh, verse 14. And let's see if we can notice what this excursion is about. What is the author trying to highlight to us? And how do we find out where that 
uh, highlight uh, portions come from. So let's uh, start again from verse six, uh, 37 in chapter 6 and then continue uh, going into chapter 7. In the fourth year, the foundation of Lord, the house of the Lord was laid in the months of Ziv, in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month. The house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Solomon was building his own house thirteen years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was a hundred cubits, and its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were only 45, and there were on 45 pillars, 15 each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in the three tiers. The doorways and the windows had square frames and the window was opposite window in the three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars, and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of throne, the hall of the throne, where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these things were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, backed and front, even from the foundation to the coping. And from the outside to the great court, the foundation was of very costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement, and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all round and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. He was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all of his work. So what we see here is in verse 37, the, uh, speaking of the house of the Lord. And then you jump down to uh, verse uh, 12. You see in the court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. But what do we see in the middle of this portion? What are some of the clues or points that help us to understand this passage? Now, it can be helpful in instances like this to go and have a look at First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and to be able to see where there's additional information or uh, information that's redacted or missing. Now, in First and Second Chronicles, there's no detail about Solomon's house as we see here. Now, what we can understand there is that Chronicles does not focus so much on kings, per se, more on the temple of God and written to a different audience, looking back on what the temple was like. Uh, some have argued that they're, they're pro-David or pro-Solomon, not highlighting their weaknesses or flaws, whereas I think they're merely just writing specifically to, about the central, centrality of the temple. But notice the contrast right in the very beginning. 
in verses 38 to verse 7. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, according to all of its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Solomon was building his own house thirteen years, and he even finished in his entire house. So here you see a contrast between the house of the Lord and Solomon's house. The author points this out by highlighting that it is his own house. Several times you see the emphasis. It's not merely that Solomon was building his house, but his own house. But we also notice that there's somewhat of a chiasm here as well. You see uh, it more clearly in the original language, but I think you can see it here. That the house was finished in all of its parts, and then according to its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. So you see here all of its parts and his entire house, both of them are the same Hebrew word. Some have tried to highlight his entire house seems to emphasize Solomon, but I think here it's more just drawing the comparison between these two things. Solomon here is building the Lord's house seven years, but he's building his own house 13 years. Now, we could merely just say that this is a statement of fact and of how the author then introduces this section. Maybe that's quite possible. It's quite possible there that you look at the extent of all that he's building here and the size of the scope of these buildings compared to the temple Lord. But I think you would see that the temple is more elaborate, uh, especially everything covered in gold. But here we see that Solomon makes his house much bigger, much better. In some other ways, it's less intricate. But what you have here is the author is trying to highlight the the contrast between the Lord's house and Solomon's house. Now, why is this important? Remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what David sought to be able to do right at the very beginning of chapter 7. Now the king David lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on all his surrounding enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So you hear David, he has his own house, but he looks out and the Lord is merely dwelling in a tent. And he seeks to be able to go build a house. But what does God tell David specifically in verses 11 to 17? From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I give you rest from all your enemies, moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the stones, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here, the promise to, to God that God makes is that 
God will be the one who will build David's house. His son will build a house for the Lord, for his name. But David's house will remain forever. And it seems here that Solomon is seeking to be able to make a name for himself, a house for himself. But the promise is that the Lord will be the one who makes the house for David. Solomon here is seeking maybe to be able to make his own name great. Seeking to make his own kingdom great. That his legacy might continue. Now often what we see in the Bible, what people often desire the most and seek and find after, is often what is taken away from them. Saul really wanted people to love him. And yet... They love David more than they loved him. And Solomon here, it seems that he's seeking to be able to make him himself, his own house, great. What happens after Solomon goes? The house is divided. The kingdom parts. So here we see more maybe of a warning of Solomon's waywardness. Now before we speak about this waywardness, let's talk a little bit more about Another way maybe to be able to look at this passage. Mainly, is this really just recording the accomplishment that he built a house? Now, that would be maybe a neutral way to be able to read this passage, that, that we're, just here, we're just commenting. Well, let's talk about Solomon building the house seven years, and then 13 years building the, his own house. Here is just the time frame of what's happening the scope of the building project. It could merely just be recording history. I think that I think that might be a valid way to be able to read this, but I think there's several reasons why I think that's not the case in this text. Firstly, it's the placement in the passage. What you have here is clearly this, this in, in, inclusion here from the building as a house of the Lord the temple of the Lord, and the contrast with Solomon's house. I think you see that clearly in verse 1, but also I think what you see here in this passage. Actually, in the Greek Septuagint of the um, Old Testament, they actually put these, these verses after verse 51. So they're just all looking at the house of the Lord. So you see that they've thought that this is somewhat of a, an abrupt excursion. Solomon's house took longer chronologically, so why would then it be recorded later? If you're looking at it in in a period of time. But also, I think, even just compartmentally, it really should be after, uh, you know, 1 Kings 9-10, which kind of speaks of this. At the end of 20 years, which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. But I think also that in the, throughout this passage, his, his own is emphasized again and again. I think here, another warning here is that in verse 8, where the author highlights that his own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back in the, of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house for, his, for the hall of Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. This is going right back to the, the beginning of chapter 3. 
You remember that it was not it was a, it was a, a red flag, a warning of, of what will come of Solomon. And here in the midst of this passage, I think we see this as well. Now, the author of Second Chronicles does highlight that Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, the king of Israel. For the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So here he explains why he makes her a house. But again, that doesn't uh, then say this marriage is fine or that it was a, a wise thing. The other thing that I think highlights in this passage maybe a, a little bit of a warning. But you see, there's a great and costly uh, effect to this. In verses 9 to 12, they were made of costly stones. Later down, the great court, the foundation was costly stones, huge stones. Above were costly stones. The great court had three courses cut in stone. Here you see that the size of what it is. Now again, b- before we move to Solomon's waywardness, this I don't think is in any means, any form of idea of idolatry from Solomon. He's not then seeking to replace God and say that he is on the, um, in the place of God. I think one of the clearest things is the contrast between the passage that we've just read in chapter 6 and this passage in chapter 7. There's no mention of any form of gold-covered uh, materials in his house. It was definitely bigger, but in no means is he trying to make it more holy. So I think you could say that Solomon here might be trying to continue the, the, to fulfill the promise that was given to David, that his house would remain forever, that his throne would remain forever. He was trying to build this legacy. Maybe he was thinking that he was carrying out God's uh, task for him, making God's job easier. So I no mean thinks that it's it's a drastic move of, of Solomon's heart to be able to try and just replace God, like many other kings will do in First Kings. We'll see that they merely do what is evil in the sight of God. They seek to be gods to themselves. But now let's quickly talk about Solomon's waywardness. I think that in all of this, we need to understand that Solomon's sin and errors do not then undo or remove any action that he has done. I think we often try to be able to maybe come to the aid or defense of that great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And we think that that biblical authors come and they, they merely must be writing good things about these people. That everything they do is great and grand. Everything is done with the right motives. That the authors hold them in high esteem. Putting them on platforms of perfection. But if we understand and read the Bible correctly, they don't need to live like perfect saints to be saints who are saved by faith. David's sins, specifically his sin with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, does not then undo all of his psalms. 
Actually, he says in, in Psalm uh, 31, I believe it is, that blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5 when he speaks of not only Abraham saved, but also David is a blessed man because he does not claim to be righteous in the sight of the law. But he, he is he's blessed because he's forgiven. So too, Solomon's sin. Now I think what we see here is we see maybe not the, the, the fullness of his sin, but maybe an understanding, an underlying nature of his sin. But Solomon's sin then doesn't undo all of his proverbs. Because our understanding is that the Holy Spirit carried their sinful hands to be able to write his holy scripture. And God used Solomon for great things, even when he sins. So we don't need to come to Solomon's defense and try and weasel our way out or try and put some form of plea bargain or something, as an attorney might do, to be able to sweeten the deal to defend Solomon. But the second aspect is that we also have great hope when we know that Solomon is a sinner. Why? Because unless we're blind, we claim and we know that we are sinners as well. That God, we're sinners and God can use us. He can use us to be able to help him in the building of his church, his house. Even if we do seek sometimes to be able to build our own. The promise to David was not that David had to build the house. But God would be the one who does the building. God would be the one that does the building, specifically through David's son. The God was the one who was going to build David a house, not the other way around. But also, thirdly, we have great hope, not merely just because that we need to try and defend them. God still uses them. But also because someone greater than Solomon is here. Here Luke, and in Matthew as well, Jesus is explaining that there's going to be people there who are going to stand in the day of judgment. And Luke explains in chapter 11, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment when the men of this generation are and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If we put our hope in, in, in the perfection of all these Old Testament saints, then we will be gravely mistaken and gravely let down. It is not Solomon who we look for, but the person greater than Solomon. Jesus, the great master builder, the great cornerstone. We don't need to make Solomon greater than he was. We don't need him to be perfect. Spurgeon put it this way. In his nature, the Lord Jesus is greater than Solomon. Alas, poor Solomon. The strongest man that ever lived, namely Samson, was the weakest of men. 
And the wisest man that ever lived was perhaps the greatest, certainly the most uh, conspicuous fool. How different is our Lord. There is no infirmity in Christ, no folly in the incarnate God. The backsliding of Solomon finds no parallel in Jesus, in whom the prince of this world found nothing, though he searched him through and through. The only person that the Bible ever claims to be perfect is Christ. So we, even if we read this passage in a positive light, that here Solomon is merely just building a house for him to be able to dwell, carrying out that promise of God that he he has the legacy of that throne which is going to last forever. If we read it merely just neutrally, to be able to see that Solomon is, is just building a house, Stating the facts. Or even if we see this in a negative light, that here Solomon might be sinning, and that he seeks to be able to carry this out, to build a bigger, greater house. That does not really matter. Because all of those center around Solomon. Not necessarily around the greater Solomon to come Jesus Christ. That the Bible merely claims and and states that Jesus is the only sinless man that has ever walked this earth. And that should lead us to be grateful that Christ is this great and glorious builder of his house and not any of us. Jesus states in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here you see, it's not about Solomon's house at all. It's actually about longing and looking forward to the Father's house in which there are many rooms, which Christ is the one who is preparing a place for us to be able to dwell. We actually have no real concept of what this actually might look like. We don't have the intricate detail that we see within the scriptures. We can at least have some understanding of what the temple might look like, but people are perplexed of the layout, the, the process, the, the scope. We are able to look at uh, geographical landscapes and trying to estimate where things look. But Solomon's house is no more. Solomon's throne is no more. But our hope is not in Solomon. Now let's uh, briefly just look at maybe trying to understand what Solomon actually did accomplish, whether it's neutral, positive, um, negative, or whatever. We see here that there's five buildings here that Solomon built. The house of forest of Lebanon in in verses 2 and 5, the porch of the pillars in verse 6, the hall of justice in verse 7, the palace in verse 8, and then the house of Pharaoh's daughter. So the house of the forest of Lebanon really receives its name as one commentator explains. 
because it, it literally looked like a, a, a forest with cedar pillars. A huge building, 150 foot by 75 or thereabouts, seems to have served somewhat as a treasury and armory, maybe a residence of all the royal bodyguard. The porch of the pillars, this porch of pillars was no doubt covered as a colonnade, had a roof but no sides, connected the house of the forest of Lebanon to the hall of justice. Maybe this is where the waiting room was. Then to the Hall of Justice. This building was open in the front, shut in the solid walls on the other three sides, covered with cedar. Here this is where the court would hold, uh, hold held court and granted audiences. Then the fourth building, the palace. If the Hall of Justice served as a principal entrance to the king's personal residence... Really, we know it's, it's similar, built in a similar style, but we don't know much about. And then finally, the house of Pharaoh's daughter. Queen's private residence seems to uh, maybe have been behind the palace. Again, these stones were great and grand, the finest quality, smoothed on all sides. It's within this great court, which enclosed both the temple and the palace. Three rows of these massive stones hewn and then covered in cedar. Now it's again hard for us to be able to visualize that, but here's a suggested layout of what it is. The, the, the temple right on the very tall part of Mount Uriah where David had purchased in, in chapter 24 in Second Samuel. And uh, he had made the sacrifice to be able to flee. Going down the hill, there you see the palace and Pharaoh's daughter's house connected. You see the scope and the size of this building project that he undertook. Maybe a different view and a different kind of layout. Here's an example of the size and the scope. You see uh, the, the buildings that Solomon built there. Quite large. You see, quite elaborate again, that the wall is, you know, a few comments in here, the verses, but here you see what a, an enormous task that is. You can then try and understand a little bit about when, you know, the Babylonians come and they take down the wall and tear down the wall and the, the temple. You understand then why they were, they're weeping by the, the rivers of Babylon, of what was and then what was not in a few moments' time. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.